You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. I want to welcome you to the latest episode of Counter Moves, and today I'm really excited for the conversation we're going to have. We have Dr. Charlie Camosi on the line with us today, who's uh, a Catholic ethicist, uh, a, a prominent thinker in his field, uh, a professor at Fordham University, and an author of several books. And so we're going to be talking about resisting throwaway culture. And we're going to unpack what throwaway culture means with Dr. Kamosi today. And of course, I'm joined by my illustrious co-host, Pastor Mike Harder. Mike, good to have you here. It's great to be here. Well, just by way of introduction, I want to give a little biographical sketch of Dr. Kamosi. Uh, Charlie Kamosi is the Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University. Uh, and he has his PhD uh, from Notre Dame. Um, among other places, he's published articles in the American Journal of Bioethics, the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy, uh, the Journal of the Catholic Health Association, the San Francisco Chronicle, Washington Post, LA Times. Uh, he's all over the place. Uh, let's just say that. Um, he's written many books, uh, Too Expensive to Treat from 2011. Uh, he's written a book on um, Peter Singer and Christian ethics, and actually I have that book in my library at home. Um, and then he's got a new book that is set to come out called Resisting Throwaway Culture. And what I love about Dr. Kamosi online is, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very politically conservative individual. Dr. Kamosi identifies as uh, a more pro-life Democrat. And we would have some political differences on how we see policy, uh, but there's a shared commitment to human dignity. And I have really enjoyed kind of the online interactions with Dr. Kamosi. So I'm excited about our conversation. Uh, Dr. Kamosi, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Mike. Before we get started, I just want to give a shout out to that bumper music. That is easily the best bumper music I've heard. In all. And I listen to a lot of podcasts. That's the best there is. Well, that's kind. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so you've got a new book coming out uh, called Resisting Throwaway Culture. And you talk about, it's abbreviated, CLE, the Consistent Life Ethic. Can you talk about what you mean by this idea of a consistent life ethic uh, for those of us who might be unfamiliar with the term? Sure. And um, it's a contested term, at least in my world. Uh, in fact, some would use a consistent life ethic to try to downplay the issues of, say, abortion and euthanasia in favor of, you know, so-called social justice issues like poverty or immigration. But I guess at bottom, what I have in mind, and I hopefully make this clear in the book, is you know, I have the gospel at the heart of what I, everything I do, including my academic work. And it's Matthew 25. It's seeing the face of Christ in the least among us, wherever we encounter the least among us, and maybe even making an important uh, effort to encounter the least among us. And, um, you know, Christ was clear. It's not one uh, or even two populations we should be concerned with. It's all the vulnerable. And, um, 
one of my frustrations with the consistent life ethic, even though I identified with it, I've identified with it for basically my whole life, is that there really wasn't a kind of systematic, principled approach, as far as I could tell. It was very haphazard. So people could, you know, abuse it and say, you know, we ought to not pay so much attention to abortion. We should only focus on the death penalty immigration, say, which is a big mistake. So I wanted to try to articulate the principles behind it, try to articulate the reasoning behind it, the arguments behind it, and maybe give it a little more intellectual heft. So the title of your book is so interesting. It's this idea of a throwaway culture. Um, could you unpack what that means for us? Like, what does it mean to have a throwaway culture? Uh, what are the main characteristics of it? And how do you think we got to this place where we value certain kinds of people over others? Well, I know that's a lot. Um, <laughs> no, that's a lot. I, I'm happy. I'm happy to talk about it. Obviously, uh, yeah. So Pope Francis really used this. I, that's how I first became of the term. I became aware of the term "throwaway culture," and um, for a long time, and still today, uh, pro-lifers uh, often refer to a culture of death. And I think that, especially John Paul II, did that. But. I think it's actually a little, especially today, it's a little more helpful to think of throwaway culture. I don't think we're really obsessed with death per se. I think it's more like um, we live in a hyper consumerist culture where everything has a price. Even people are considered objects and products and they have a price that can be used and discarded as so much trash. We clearly see that with you know, the prenatal child. We see it with disabled people and older people at the end of life. I think, frankly, we see it with immigrants at the border. So the throwaway culture is is designed actually to um, so radically reduce human dignity to the point we don't even recognize the people as human, or or we at least we aren't recognized the people as being discarded and thrown away. And the language we use this is really a key point. The language we use is specifically designed to hide their dignity. So we talk about the fetus, right? We don't mm -hmm. talk about the prenatal child or the baby, even though. In outside of an abortion or biology class context, we never use the term fetus. It's always a, a baby bump, never a fetus bump, right? Right. But th this this happens all the time in other issues. So we instead of talking about the stories of actual people fleeing violence in the Northern Triangle, for instance, we just talk about quote unquote illegals, right? right. We don't even we don't even identify them as actual people like us. They're just dismissed as illegals takers rather than makers at the end of life or people with very serious brain injury or trauma. We often refer to them as vegetables, which right you now, like I think that's just a totally offensive dehumanizing term and, and, and the culture of encounter, which is what the book really is about in a positive sense is designed to replace or try to mitigate the, against throwaway culture. I think I think that's exactly right. And what I notice is when we use terms like uh, referring to a child as just the contents of the pregnancy, I've heard that language, uh, or wow. I, I, like language like vegetable, what I think that does. And I think this this language of throwaway culture that you're, you're using, either uh, intentionally or unintentionally, is very evocative in the sense because we all kind of have that, you know, kind of daily rhythm where we know where we just kind of casually toss things aside as though they're unimportant. We can just discard them. And what I notice mm -hmm. in this type of language that you're talking about is, is you're moving from the personal to the abstraction, which then leads to objectification. And so uh, can you just unpack a little bit uh, what you meant by 
um, a theology of encounter. What that was a really it's important language. What do you mean by that? Well, I think too often we become, uh, especially now. I think we're just in this this hyper partisan obsessed with national politics mode. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but I think the culture is just obsessed with this in ways that are deeply unhealthy. We don't necessarily focus on our neighbors about having personal encounters. Our, the command of Christ was to love one another as I have loved you, which is, which presumes a personal encounter with someone, right? So too often, I think, and I say this as, as you pointed out in the intro, somebody who's you know, definitely not a conservative, but I wouldn't identify really as a liberal either when it comes to policy. In the book, I'm trying to, you know, prescind from all that and say it's time to maybe take a, a, a like a hot political shower. I use that analogy. <laughs> just, what, what, wipe the wipe the political grime and dirt off and treat our wounds and, and maybe get down to what actually matters, the fundamental values, the, to, to use a more technical term, first principles, which we hold most dear. And then, and then meditate on those and think about those. And, and I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, we need a more encounter-centric um, approach to our lives. This is not about debating what the abortion law should be, though that's important. This is not about debating what our immigration policies should be, that's important. It's about loving one another as I have loved you. Yes, that's, that's very good. You write in your book, um, referring to Pope Benedict XVI's uh, encyclical Caritas and Veritate, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Uh, yeah, you got it. <laughs> that, that the church's stance on pro-life issues and those on social justice issues can't be distinguished. And I'm not sure how much you're following kind of evangelicalism right now, but we're having a lot of internal discussions um, about this concept of social justice. And I think the Catholic tradition might have a different understanding of that of that concept, uh, maybe a little bit differently than how some Protestants construe that concept. But can you talk about why you think that we divide these uh, kind of pro-life issues from social justice issues into the categories of conservative or liberal? And what's problematic about these that, that type of division? Well, to build on my earlier point, I think a lot of it comes from my, our idolatry of secular politics. So if you just look at the issues which typically get you know, listed under social, a list like that would be a social justice list or a pro-life list, they have so much in common. That's, that's at the heart of my book is to say these principles, these pro-life principles um, really transcend the life and social justice political binary or right-left binary. Mm -hmm. But I think in part because we are so idolatrous when it comes to our national politics, we kind of end up saying, well, this is what ultimately matters. So I guess I have to go with the party that most identifies with, um, you know, what I happen to believe about policy and politics. And in the process, I've seen it happen time and time again, good-hearted, well-meaning, Christ-centric people end up um, over time because of the idolatry, just kind of going almost all in with a particular party so that they, and it's not even going in with the party per se, it's almost as if they're more against the other party. It's defining by opposition. So I'm not an SJW. SJWs are bad. They're over there in that other place. Or those crazy pro anti-abortion pro-lifers, misogynists, they're in that, they're over there, they're bad. And instead of, and that's just a bizarre way to think about it intellectually, but also from a Christian perspective, it just misses the whole point of loving our neighbor and especially loving our, per, at least our perceived enemy. And so if we can use different language, if we can, in fact, like be conscious about resisting binary thought, like either you're either pro-life or your social justice, you're either right or left, um, Democrat, Republican, and just focus more on what the gospel asks of us. I think 
I mean, what Benedict is really saying there is you can't really separate those lists. They're it's one list. I, I think that's really perceptive, the the linguistic debate in all of this, because you mentioned the term SJW, which is social justice warrior for anyone who uh, is maybe had their head in the sand for the past couple of years. <laughs> but, you know, we kind of uh, derisively mock the idea of social justice warrior. And I we do sometimes, at least on the right, because it's perceived as like, you know, the socially woke, hypersensitive person who just lives and breathes grievance their entire life. Uh, yeah. But there's something uh, – social justice should not be – the domain of one particular party because at the end of the day, I mean, I've, I've never met someone who actually says, I'm opposed to justice. What social justice has become is a political volley in our community, in our, in our, in our political society for that matter, where it's, well, I, I like my version of social justice and I, and I don't like your version of, of justice. And what, what we're trying to be doing as a society is to, to be achieving and arriving at these core principles of, of how we treat one another. And I think what you say is exactly right, that this really is uh, the great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. And from that springs kind of a, a social ethic of how we interact with one another. But anyway, Mike, I know you have a question. Yeah. So, one of the things I loved about your book, Charlie, was how contemporary it was. And by contemporary, I mean it really deals with a lot of the issues that are facing culture today and engages with a lot of the the current uh, dilemmas that Christians have to deal with right now. And uh, it was like right out of the headlines. So I think that's one of the things I thought was so interesting about it. And uh, a big part of that was your your conversation about the commodification of sex and pornography and uh, how people even see sex as a utility and the people who are part of it almost using people as as things rather than people. So can you just walk us through that, um, that subject matter? It was hard to read, honestly, because there were so many things that, that just break your heart. But can you help us understand how Christians should engage a culture in which pornography and its effects is a, an environment in which we're all swimming in? Yeah. And especially in a post-Me Too moment and Church Too moment, I think we just need to take these issues head on. No more brushing aside, no more um, looking the other way. It's tough to look at, but we have to. It's just part of what has to get done, and we have lots of work to do. And as you intimated in your question, the reason why it's so difficult, it's the work is so difficult, is because now porn, rather than being this thing that you get in a, pla- a black plastic bag by going to a store, is now everywhere. It's, it's mm-hmm. on demand for free wherever you are. And um, in fact, I just uh, last year saw a um, Pornhub advertisement in the middle of Times Square. <laughs> it's like, well, we've reached a new, uh, we've reached a new level here. And dating's and, uh, changed too, right? I mean, that was one of the things I just really yeah. walked away with it. You know, having been married for a while now and having gone through my courtship with my wife and dating before all this online stuff, Bumble and Tinder and all those new developments. It was shocking to see the hookup culture just rise in our society. And this is the things that our people and our friends are actually dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Dating, hookups, and porn are now all of a piece. It's a culture now. And I think throwaway culture is a helpful way of kind of entering into it and trying to understand it. 
instead of again seeing people as people the point the whole point of the culture is to not see people as people it's to in the context of porn obviously it's to dehumanize people and use their images uh as a mean pure means to a sexual end right and then in hookup culture which has now been pornified it's the same thing except it involves what some might argue is mutual consent. So we mutually consent to use each other and not treat each other as actual people and then discard each other when we're done. And it's, it's called, people who are honest, there's been lots of qualitative work done on hookup culture now. And there's actually lots of people who uh, you might, as you might imagine, say, well, it doesn't feel very good to be thrown away and discarded after sex. Mm. And so there's um, a really important literature now developing about that. But we're headed in, in a very, we're already in a difficult place. But if we don't pump the brakes here and take a moment to look around and see what our culture is like, we're going to very even worse places, it seems to me. Uh, we're not too far away from uh, sex robots coming on the scene, which right. takes the, you know, the, the thingification of sex, using sex merely as a product to a whole new level. But it's just a logical extension of where we're going. And Boy, oh boy, you can see how a culture of encounter would be the antidote to something like this. Actually humanizing our sexual partners, thinking about their good, loving them, right? Loving um, them as Christ loved us. So the that's the antidote, it seems to me. But right now, um, though there are some helpful uh, things, like I think post Me Too is maybe a, a moment that we can take advantage of. And one that, per the earlier question, transcends the pro-life and social justice dichotomy, it seems to me. Uh, really, if we don't if we don't start moving in a different direction, we're headed to a, an even worse place. It seems. You know, one of the things I think is so interesting is that the ideas you had in your book of moving towards a better sexual ethic, of better understandings of sex, and not just like going back to some sort of Victorian era, but rather a more beautiful uh, understanding of what a sexual relationship looks like and one that's within a covenant relationship is a really important conversation. So I was just wondering, could you unpack for us really briefly some ways we can bring this out of your book and into our lives? Because I read that and I was like, man, this is like really hard to read. And yet as a pastor to my people, speaking to them about that, um, both Andrew and I are, are both fathers of girls. Like we, <laughs> we have yeah. zero boys between us. And, uh, you know, I, I read that and just kind of really began to feel just a heartbreak or the reality of what my girls are going to be entering into. And so do you have any advice for us on how to, like, have these conversations more regularly? I feel that, too. I'm the adoptive father of two girls, and uh, one is going off to college next year. I have a oh, lot of man. These questions. So, so I guess I'd start with saying that the church wants all of us, uh, and especially our daughters, to have good sex. I, let, let's just start there. You know, it's not an anti-sex, neo-Victorian, sex is bad approach. It's it's that we ought to have good sex. And there's there's a lot of social science data now to support the fact that the people that have the best sex are married people. It's just who a, go to church most often, too, at that. Who go to church most often, exactly. <laughs> we, need, we need to actually they put that on bumper sex. stickers so people actually know <laughs> that being you want, you, Christians are good. You want, you want better sex, go to, go to church. church. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and we can see the results of, of, of different uh, communities, right? So um, I, I tell all my freshmen that they are having less sex than my generation, even my parents' generation did. They're getting bored with sex. It's not the kind of thing they even want to engage in. It's bad sex. So what is happening here? Overall, people, the sexual rates are, are going down throughout the culture. And again, back to the earlier point, when sex robots come on the scene, I'm afraid to see what, what happens. 
but uh, the, so the, that's the place I would start is it's a, a culture of encounter. You mentioned the word covenant in a covenantal situation is the locus for the best sex, the most sex. And that's, that's a positive thing we ought to be. Um, we ought to be focusing on now as a Catholic. And I know there's um, other Christian denominations that are starting to think of this way too. I want to emphasize that the covenantal relationship ought to be open to uh, what in the book I call hospitality. So not, not just hospitality for each other, but welcoming new life. And when we separate um, uh, a covenantal sexual relationship from uh, welcoming uh, and being open to new life from God, I think we miss something uh, important about what the act is actually biologically designed for, even if one isn't a Christian. Um, not only that, obviously, it's designed for the unity of the couple as well, but it's if you just look at the biology, it's pretty clear what's going on here. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, it's in a in a biblical context, right? Like, um, I was privileged to listen to one of your previous Counter Moves podcasts where you discussed in detail Humana Vitae and some of the overlap that might um, exist um, in evangelical and Catholic worlds down the road if we can think more and together about what a covenantal sexual relationship open to um, being fruitful and um, and uh, and uh, you know understanding the command of Genesis what it appears to be which is to be right. fruitful and multiply so uh, so we and now we can see uh, what what happens when I go into some detail when um, contraceptive mentality just becomes ubiquitous in the culture. So we don't have lower STI rates. We have higher STI rates. People are having more um, dangerous and uh, partners and dangerous sex when it comes to STIs. We're not having better sex. We're having worse sex. So there's just, I, I could say more, but I've realized I'm talking a lot here. I'm sure you have another question. Well, so I, I want to, I mean, this is related uh, and it's an issue of increasing concern to me is the issue of artificial reproductive technology. Um, and yeah. how this this is creating its own throwaway culture as well. I mean, I'm not sure if you saw a, a friend and I wrote uh, an article for the Gospel Coalition on on IVF, and it got a lot of pushback from well-meaning evangelical Christians uh, because we were coming out against the practice of IVF, and a lot of individuals would say, "Well, how can you say?" that it's wrong for married couples to pursue every route to bring about children. Isn't that a godly instinct? Well, of course it's a godly instinct, but there are byproducts to these practices, uh, especially creating multiple embryos. And now we have frozen, suspended children hanging in uh, freezers right now, which is its own form of, of a throwaway culture that we're not allowing these, these created embryos to, to grow. So I, I would just love for you to maybe reflect a little bit on your book's theme in relationship to kind of artificial reproductive technology and, and where that's going in the future. Yeah. So one problem, and I have dear friends who have used IVF and family members who have, so it's a complicated issue. Um, personally, right. Very complicated. But I will say that one thing that it's done is it's it's kind of like the other half of the separation of sex from procreation. Um, so it's probably even better when, especially if we prescind from individual decision making and just look at the, the culture, the, the systems which have sprung up as a result of this procreation is better described now as reproduction. The word product is even in the word in an interesting way. 
So we now think of, especially with IVF becoming uh, the norm of that as a product that's purchased on a market. And even the building blocks like sperm and ova are purchased, often purchased in a marketplace. And, uh, you know, you don't need to look too far to find advertisements at Ivy League uh, college campuses offering serious money, like ridiculous money for people that have, you know, a certain level of SAT score or are a varsity athlete, or um, if they send a picture and they're attractive, they get more money for their eggs as well. So, um, and then we shouldn't be surprised that there's, as a product in reproduction, we want quality control over our product. Mm -hmm. So if we... Um, have an embryo that is not the proper uh, XX or XY sex. Fertility clinics now offer uh, discarding all embryos that aren't the, uh, if you want XY, you can just get rid of all the XXs, only implant XY. So you'd be sure of getting the kind of gender you want. Um, and you either get these excess, uh, quote unquote, excess embryos either get discarded or they, uh, or they get used straight up in stem cell research, or they just get, as you mentioned, uh, put in this, uh, you know, uh, sort of icy state, frozen state, uh, where it's not clear what they're, I mean, I think, uh, the Vatican called this an absurd fate for, for, uh, for, for these hundreds of thousands, if not millions of embryos. And so while it is a strong and important impulse to say, um, you know, let's, let's do all we can to follow the command, uh, to be fruitful and multiply. It's about welcoming a gift from God. It's not about purchasing a product on a market. We are not owed children. Um, and as a result of that, I think we need to be hyper aware of the fact that it's not, this is, shouldn't be the product of a marketplace, but rather about welcoming a gift from God. It's a very complicated conversation to be sure. And uh, one of the most redemptive things I've heard uh, on that topic was I had some friends who actually adopted an embryo, actually adopted several embryos and brought them into the world that were in a frozen state, uh, which is fascinating in, in a lot of different ways. I'd like to transition us to another really difficult topic, which is euthanasia. And it's a topic that brings out a lot of strong reactions from people. Um, and so what are your thoughts on why people really struggle with this? Um, what is it about sickness and disease that, that have led us to defend the right to end our own lives so so strongly? And is there something that's maybe underneath the surface that's driving this, where people are like, no, I actually want to have the, the right to end my life whenever I want it to be so I don't have to go through some kind of painful condition at the end of my life? I think, again, it, I mean, the, the throwaway culture just looms so large here in, a, in the following way. So we've now the consumer, uh, uh, my critique of consumer culture, as you've probably already put together from my previous comments, looms large in my critique as well. And now consumer culture has be, become so encompassing that it kind of determines what kind of life has value. And, and it does so in a specific way with regard to euthanasia and assisted suicide. So we now use phrases like you know, a, you know, what makes life worth living is being a productive member of society that, you know, or um, being an autonomous, being an autonomous uh, being, right, or somebody that's not a burden on others. And in fact, if you just look at, again, the data, data is so helpful for these debates. You, you, you poll people who requested assisted suicide in, um, in Oregon, for instance, physical pain, which we all are sympathetic to and are working to address and 
you know, the same Catholic church that is against euthanasia and assisted suicide has tons of hospice and hospital centers all over the world to address physical pain. Physical pain doesn't even make the top five reasons people in Oregon request assisted suicide. The, the primary reasons, in fact, are about loss of autonomy and being a burden on others. And uh, one, of my, one of my favorite articles in bioethics um, comes from a great uh, bioethicist who's retired recently, Gilbert Mylander, who said uh, in one of his, the title of one of his articles is, I want to be a burden on my family. That's right. I remember and, that. Uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful article. And um, it, there's a reason why the disability community is overwhelmingly against assisted suicide. And some of uh, disabled persons are some of the most powerful witnesses and committee hearings across the states uh, when they're discussing assisted suicide. It's because the, the it's demonic to take these populations and say, well, you kind of decided that we can understand why you'd want to kill yourself. So let's make it easier for you. That's exactly the opposite instinct we should have, especially if we have a socially just orientation on the left. It should be one where we say, no, let's change a consumer culture, which makes people understand themselves to have benefit only when they're autonomous. They're not being a burden on others. We're all burdens on each other. That's the point of living in a, a, a community is we're, we're, we're supposed to help each other. Part of what the, uh, intent, uh, the whole point of living in community is, is we're supposed to help e- ease each other's burdens and to, and to love each other as Christ has loved us. I keep on coming back to that again. And he, he would have been the first person to say like, no, it's good that you exist and to show true compassion, suffering with no one, suffered with no one showed true compassion more than Christ himself. And the, um, that, that's at the heart of, of another, again, the culture of encounter. So many people, so many people at the end of their lives are desperately lonely and don't, and don't have an encounter with people. And so instead of saying, yes, 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 let's make it easier for you to kill yourself and, and we'll discard you this way. Let's do the hard work of trying to change the culture. So people don't feel lonely and abandoned as if, you know, they're a burden on others. Charlie, you um, in your book talk about um, nuclear weapons, of all things. Um, so can you yeah. share a little bit why those weapons in particular were so important for you to address when, I mean, they've only been used one time in warfare. So help us understand your thinking about um, the inclusion of, of nuclear warfare in your book and, and I guess in the overall thesis of the book as well. Yeah. So I guess um... – one practical reason is the consistent life ethic was first really articulated by um, a guy named Cardinal Bernadine, Joseph Bernadine from Chicago back in the early 80s when, I don't know about you guys, but I was in grammar school at the time doing duck and cover drills for fear of having a nuclear war at that point. And uh, he, uh, he gave a talk at Fordham University, actually, where I teach now, which became very famous because the New York Times covered it. And the headline in the Times the next day was that Bernadine comes out against abortion and nuclear weapons, which were two major issues. Roe versus Wade had just happened and um, a few years ago, and um, we were in the middle of the Cold War at the time. So this was a brand new way of thinking, and I just feel, felt like I couldn't write a book on the consistent life ethic and, without really addressing it. So that was the, kind of a historical, practical point. But the other one is a theoretical point, a point of, um, you know, a point of ethics, which is the nature of nuclear weapons, of course, is to mass slaughter of the innocent. That's the point. And um, one, in order, I, I, you know, people may or may not have good, uh, quote unquote, intentions for this, like deterrence of nuclear warfare. That's pro- the primary argument people use. But especially as Christians, we don't do intrinsically evil things as a means to a good end. We just don't. 
and forming the intentions to slaughter innocent people has to be part of the deterrent, which, you know, the Soviet Union had to believe that we would be willing to slaughter millions and millions of innocent people in order for our nuclear weapons to be an effective deterrent. And that same holds true for today. If we want our nuclear weapons to be an effective deterrent, people have to believe that we're willing to use them. And that that seems problematic. Now, the counter argument to that seems to be, well, you know, we've well, then we become victims or we don't, you know, we allow others to gain an upper hand or we put our own national security at risk. And I'm, I'm not naive. I think that's probably correct. I think I think it's probably correct. But um, self-preservation is not the primary Christian value. And um, we, we ought not do evil that good may come of it. And it's it's evil to form the intention to slaughter millions of people. It's interesting that you say that because, uh, you know, that's that's been an issue that I've grappled with ethically. And, you know, it originally started out years ago thinking that, you know, we were morally righteous and justified to use nuclear warfare uh, in World War II. And the more I've actually sat and thought about that, it becomes much more difficult. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and so this is where your your principled ethics can conflict with your patriotism, uh, because yeah. we're inclined to think, well, our cause is just and right. Uh, but you have to evaluate the question, is it right to use warfare that intentionally uh, – it is not discriminating in who it kills. It takes out every single person. So this is these are tough questions. I know Mike has the last question, and then I'll uh, I'll conclude us. So Charlie, every time um, I've ever written anything, I've always come back and said, "Hey, I, I wish I could add this one thing to it." And I know that this book is now uh, about to go uh, live, right? So uh, if it hasn't already, today. yeah, oh, today. it's actually today. Man. Well, yesterday. Okay. Well, congratulations. I feel bad that we didn't realize Thank it was you. the uh, this was the drop date or yesterday was. This is great, man. You're helping. Congrats. You're helping the launch. You're helping the launch. Thank you. Very good. <laughs> so it's it's out right, and it is set. Yeah. So uh, in the book, pretty early on, you said, "Hey, there's some things that I wish I could have put in this book, but I had to take out stuff like human cloning, police violence, homelessness, torture, and gun violence. Those are some of the topics you said, hey, I wish I could have these in there. Um, now that you're on the other side of having it go to print and it's out in stores, is there any of these that you'd rather be, that you'd really like to pick up again? That you'd say, hey, listen, I'd, I'd like to talk about these, or is there something else that's not even on that list that should be on that list that you're thinking about right now? Well, let me give two. Let me answer the second one and then the, the first one too. For the second one quickly, I originally was going to have a chapter actually on um, football and ultimate fighting. I'm a huge sports fanatic, oh. and I love both football and uh, don't not really a fan of ultimate fighting. But the way that we kind of use as a culture, especially uh, people who have um, serious traumatic brain injury as a result of the um, um, sports they play. I find so difficult and uh, it's something I've struggled with over the last several years, actually. How can I, when I believe what I believe about the matters that we've been talking about, um, really support football when I know what it's doing to the brains of these people. And, um, 
and ultimate fighting takes it to a whole new level it seems to me but um i i just my editors and i decided that i really couldn't do that issue justice and it was the book already had enough because you can only um, you, you got to choose how much you want to offend and what what constituents you, you're going to lose <laughs> when you write a book which people on twitter are going to come after you yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah but i mean i don't know like uh, christian being a christian is hard and if it, if it means giving up football that's that's what it means but uh I'm not sure it means that, and I, I, that's one reason why I didn't write the chapters. I'm actually still struggling with the issue and not quite sure what I what I want to say about it. But um, one one other issue that I thought I could have said a lot about, but kind of regretting now, as you said, once the book's out, you immediately want to write it differently. But um, is I probably should have included a chapter on homelessness. I I think especially because it intersects with so many other things like you know mental illness and veterans how we treat veterans um after they go to war for us which is actually somewhat analogous to um how we treat football players in some way right they go they do this thing and then they get injured and especially in their they have brain injuries and mental illness ptsd it's probably better to call it a disease brain disease and uh and the, the, as you probably know a huge portion of our homeless community are are veterans and um mentally disabled veterans and they are abusers of drug and alcohol. So there's uh, this amazing and horrific confluence of, of issues in the issue of homelessness that I think would have been a rich chapter to consider. And the the press chose a picture actually of on the cover of my book of um, uh, someone in the front of St. Paul's cathedral in, uh, in London bending down and giving some coins to a homeless person which is good, but not exactly the culture of encounter either. He's clearly got earbuds in. He's just stopping for a brief moment to give a few coins, which isn't terrible, of course, but the culture of encounter is more than that, right? It's about actually engaging the real lives of people as Christ loved us. And and so I guess I, I kind of feel like maybe in a, if I ever write a, a, a second edition of the book, I'd want a chapter on homelessness. That's good. Well, Dr. Kamosi, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Counter Moves. Uh, to our listeners, I really want to commend the work of uh, Dr. Kamosi to you all. His Twitter handle is at C Kamosi, uh, the letter C and then Kamosi. Um, and then his book, which apparently dropped uh, yesterday, uh, Resisting Throwaway Culture. Uh, I, I really want to recommend this book to you. I think it's um, a book that will be looked to as something that puts a, a stake in the ground for building a culture of dignity and uh, a culture of humaneness, which I think is really important to us as Christians. Um, Dr. Kamosi, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Well, we're actually introducing a new segment in Counter Moves, which is where Mike and I are going to kind of debrief and discuss what we just heard uh, in the preceding interview. And so, Mike, I just want to ask you, like, what what's your takeaway from our conversation with Dr. Kamosi? Areas where you disagree or agree? Uh, I just want to kind of get your your read on on our conversation. I think his book and this interview really made me think deeply about a comprehensive theory or philosophy of life and what that really looks like. Sometimes I put those in specific uh, compartments. So right. here's where I talk about uh, political issues, and over here's where I talk about justice issues, and over here's where I talk about uh, abortion, and over here even I'll talk about euthanasia, another category. Um, but he has some really good ideas on how to 
make those all together. Seamless. I, I, yeah, yeah, seamless and kind of the underlying ethic behind it. I thought that was really helpful. I also really thought it was interesting um, how he developed um, some of his ideas and, and brought those into not just a theoretical way, but actually into the the day-to-day things that people are actually discussing and trying to figure out right now. I thought that was very, very helpful. Um, you know, I think there's interesting dynamics there as a, as a Southern Baptist when, you, when you're mm-hmm. dialoguing with him is he leans on traditions that we're not as comfortable with right. or as, as familiar with. Treating as a sources of authority that we're not as comfortable using as authorities. Sure. Right. And I mean, we would say, oh, it's great as a thinker, but he carries – uh, with him and understanding that that's almost scripture. I mean, right. not, not 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 truly scripture, truly but scripture. it speaks with a certain weight. With Catholicism, gives weight to popes to human beings in a way that a lot of Protestants aren't comfortable with doing. I mean, we we I mean, this is no disrespect to Dr. Camosi or Catholicism. I mean, Protestants disagree with the office of of the papacy. Um, but I really we're not trying to make this a debate about Protestantism versus Catholicism, but I think it does draw out um, an important uh, feature of the book is mm-hmm. that there is reference and sourcing and uh, authority given to kind of the magisterium of the Catholic Church that we as Protestants would not agree with. And I, I think, honestly, again, no disrespect intended, um, I don't think we need um, a magisterium or the papacy to arrive at the same conclusions that Dr. Camosi gets us to. So right. um, and, I think I almost even took it like, hey, he's referencing them not only as having some level of authority and, and leadership globally over the church and historically over the church, but rather also as scholars and thinkers, which at yeah, that point right. we'd say, yeah, I, that's great. These men spend their entire Pope time Benedict, in life thinking about clear, that. I'm actually a huge admirer of the philosophical thought of Joseph Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI. I mean, his his work on natural law and reason uh, and moral relativism are phenomenal. And World-class scholar. Everyone should be endorsing yeah. that. As we're talking about these things, some of the differences a little bit between Dr. Camosi and some of the areas that we, we agree, and then other areas we kind of like say, well, just different traditions in some ways. Right. Um, you know, as... As you listen to this, let me just pose the question to you that you asked me. What are some of the things you walked away with and some things you'd say, hey, um, I, I need to think more about these issues going forward and, and and kind of contemplate some of the things that he's been talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I've been internally thinking about, I mean, honestly, the seamlessness of the Christian ethic as far as how we understand human dignity. And the more I've kind of dived deep on this myself, I mean, when you really plumb the depths of the implications of Genesis 1 and the Imago Dei and what it means that every single human being bears God's image, um, I mean, I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said that um, if, you've, if you've ever walked by someone, you've never seen a mere mortal, which Lewis is basically saying that Every single person we walk by on the street uh, is made in the image of God, known by God, made by God, um, has a soul, has an eternal destiny. Uh, And so we can't casually dismiss people. If we casually dismiss people, we dismiss their maker, which is one of the, what we read in Proverbs. If you insult the poor, you insult the poor's maker. Um, And so I think what 
this book does and the, these types of arguments do is it, it brings us back to that common denominator, this this commonality that we share as a humanity. Some of us are rich, some of us are poor, some of us have mental acuities that are that are more gifted than others. Uh, but what's brilliant about Christian ethics and our anthropology is that dignity is something that is distributed in equal measure. Um, and so someone can't possess more dignity than someone else. Someone might possess more intelligence than you or I by just sheer aptitude and giftings and ability, but they do not possess more dignity than us. They do not possess more worth than us. Um, and so amidst all of our difference as humans, there's incredible sameness uh, as well in in the dignity and worth that we reflect uh, of our creator. Right, because dignity is not based on talent or money or power. It's based on our resemblance to our creator. Right. And it's I mean, a it's, real reality. It's, 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 if you exist, you have dignity. You can't, it can't be added to or subtracted from because it just, it, it, it exists. And then there are, there, are, I mean, that's the whole point of his book. There are ethical implications from that reality. It's, it's how we treat one another. Um, you know, I, I think of little things like this. The Christian tradition has always had an appreciation for the dead. So we don't wantonly discard deceased people. We treat their body with respect. We put them in a casket. We bury them in the ground. That is not traditionally what a lot of pagan attitudes have been towards death. It's, oh, that's just your casing that's died. Mm -hmm. Who cares what we do with with the body? We can burn it. Um, We can throw it off in a pit. It just doesn't matter. Uh, That's not what Christianity has said, because there's even something, (laughs) there's something profound about us, even in a post-mortem state, Mm -hmm. that our bodies reflect the dignity of the creator, even when our bodies, uh, even when the soul has departed from the body, which is profound. And we see that even within our military in the United States military. It's like one of those like things that's carried over into that culture where they don't leave even their dead comrades behind. They go find them. They identify them. Uh, they they keep them as somebody who's still missing in action if they haven't been able to identify a body. So it's really interesting to see how that has been has been a value that Christianity has imported into our military culture. And you know, sometimes when you think about it, you're like, well, you know, why why are you spending so much time thinking about that body? But they. There's this, this value still. Well, think for, about the, uh, the the tomb of the unknown soldier in right. DC. You can't explain that beautiful ceremony and the pomp around that apart from a human dignity ethic. You just can't. I mean, I I think this is making you realize so much of what we do in society it assumes a, a human dignity ethic. Mm-hmm. The problem with us is as sinners, we we either suppress or are unwilling to uh, be conscientious of that dignity, uh, or we just are not willing to distribute it like we ought. Especially when it costs us, personally. Right, right. Like, oh, I'm going to be inconvenienced by this. Then I'd rather just throw that away and move forward. Right. Uh, I got one more question for you. Um, in your opinion, are all issues the same in how we evaluate throwaway culture? So would there be yeah. some kind of hierarchy or yeah, ranking? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, b- because it gets to that question of of what do we prioritize? What's most urgent? Um, and so that language of no one likes talking about moral or ethical 
hierarchy because it means that some issues are more important than others. So here's how I answer that question. I think it's actually really, really important is I think that uh, we have to separate out in our minds the issues in society that exist as a byproduct of human nature and human sin uh, that we cannot fix or ameliorate overnight. Uh, And we have to separate that out from issues of injustice and issues of evil that are perpetrated in our laws. So what this means is, is where there is evil codified in a law, I think that there is urgency in overturning uh, evil law that is, or evil principles that have been codified in law. That doesn't mean that we don't care about the other issues, but it means as far as the urgency, we want to attack the laws that are enabling injustice to occur. So let's let's break this down practically. What does this mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be helpful. Yeah, take an issue of sex trafficking. Everyone is against sex trafficking in the United States. I don't hear anyone I – don't, I don't know of a pro-sex trafficking lobby. There are not laws – promoting sex trafficking. Sex trafficking exists in our society because human depravity exists and human wickedness exists. Um, so there aren't, there isn't a, a legal infrastructure that is putting in place uh, the trafficking of, of young women being sold into sex slavery. But what do we know in our, in our society where there are laws that are perpetrating great wickedness? That's abortion. So we have legal infrastructure in our society that is allowing a systemic evil and systemic injustice to occur. So what we want to say is uh, human trafficking is absolutely wicked and awful and ought to be condemned. And we ought to have nonprofits working to working to assist police and ministering to these girls who are caught in these types of circumstances to bring this injustice to an end, while also acknowledging oh my gosh, we have laws over here that are actually purposefully allowing injustice and evil to occur. If you're asking me, and I, I can't argue this from Scripture, so let me, right. let me clarify that. Well, the model's different in Scripture. They're, in a diff- they're underneath the empire of Rome. There's right. no vote. There's The republic is not extended to the Jewish people. To, to vote. Yeah, exactly. They're legislate. Yeah, that's right. So if you're asking me my personal conviction on the matter, I think that we have an urgency to undo laws that perpetrate and perpetuate evil and injustice. That's more urgent than overcoming evils that exist just because of human nature existing like it is. Right. What that means is I'm not calling for or uh, being naive or optimistic that we're going to remove all of these injustices. And And you're not calling for a theocracy. Not calling for a theocracy. I'm saying that if you eliminate abortion laws, you're still going to have people who want to commit abortion or have an abortion. Uh, If you do everything in our power to work against sex trafficking, you're still going to have people who are doing that. Mm -hmm. Because Genesis 3, Romans 8, we have have, uh, a sin nature that drives us towards what is sinful and what is wicked. Right. And so, again, this language of hierarchy, no one really likes, but I do think it is, it's at least a helpful framework for us to understand 
when we think about what Christians ought to be giving their attention to, it's not that we give any less attention to social evils that exist because of human wickedness. It's that we, I think we do need to fix our gaze on those issues that our legislators and our laws are, are doing that bring about wickedness and evil. Which is an element of like God's common grace where he's restraining and, right. you know, uh, holding sin back in some ways. And anytime we enter into that, there's something that's deeply redemptive and beautiful. But I mean, there's always going to be some kind of pushback from the world from that as well. So like, I think that's, that's a really great instinct to say, hey, things that we can change and that are within our scope. It's not just within our own personal life that, hey, I'm not going to be somebody that's going to be a part of uh, committing an abortion or performing them, but rather I believe that overall our society is a better society that actually values children regardless right. of what age they are. That's exactly right. And that uh, I want to be somebody that's actually for moms who are definitely terrified of their future with an unwanted pregnancy when they're not ready for, has no support. But we believe that 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 doesn't mean that the story should end there, but rather we want to be people that come alongside and link arms with them and care for them. And we're just begging, like, would we please have ways to um, value the life that you're carrying because we value it with you and you're not alone. So I think these are like really important questions that that are worth wrestling with. And, you know, I, I think it's beautiful that, you know, one last takeaway I would take would, is that, you know, Christians sometimes can get really passionate about the issue of the unborn and abortion and get fired up for that issue. And I think what Dr. Kamosi was saying, is like, hey, listen, that same passion you have, there's other categories you need to be thinking about right. as a Christian because you can't just leave it there. And yes, that is like definitely if you're just looking at abortion, if that, and I would say in my view, biblically, that is a life that is the greatest single tragedy occurring. Right, I agree with that. Uh, and yet... Um, that doesn't mean I can only stop there. I need to be thinking about other areas. And his categories are ones that I, that I don't really think about very often, you know, especially like homelessness. Right. Um, you know, we interact with homeless people to try care and love for them. But like, do we really see it as a dignity issue? And that's, that's very challenging, honestly. So. Well, hey, um, Mike, thanks for uh, the conversation. We're going to wrap up and conclude. But uh, appreciate you and uh, hope you, our listeners, have uh, found this conversation profitable. We'll talk to you next time.